series this morning. It feels personally like it's been a while since we were in a sermon series here at FC Cubed. And by sermon series, I mean like four years, okay? Like something that is really substantial and lasts long. And some of the new people are like slightly chuckling. Yeah, four years is a real thing. Um, <clears throat> but um, we're going to aim for like 12 weeks, okay, for uh, this series. And, and what we're going to be doing is looking at the Apostles' Creed. And, and we're going to be looking at it to um, see it and use it and examine it in order to develop a vocabulary for our faith, for the Christian faith, for what we believe um, in terms of some of the most profound and powerful and important truths that we hold dear. Um, I, when teaching, uh, I teach theology at East Baptist University. When I'm teaching or invited to give a lecture on a theological topic, I often start um, with kind of a litmus test, and I, I've got a comic that I found, and it is a picture of Jesus, and Jesus is sitting uh, on a hill. Can we see the picture there? Yeah. And uh, praying, and he, uh, are you there, God? It's you, Jesus. And I say, explain. Explain to me this, uh, this comic. Why is it funny? And then how does it make sense, if it makes sense at all? And what I've found is that most people, Christians, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christians, raised in the church, been in church for a long time, have a hard time conceptualizing what's happening when Jesus and the Gospels a couple thousand years ago, praise. Because they know Jesus is God. But then they think through, well, what does that mean? Jesus is praying to God, praying to himself. Is this like a play act? Is he pretending? Is Jesus, you know, very, very lonely and just talking to himself? Um, and what I've found is that, by and large, um, Christians are not equipped with the vocabulary to fully explain the identity of their God, in particular the profoundness of the Trinity, right? So to, to fully understand what's happening when Jesus prays, you'd have to understand the Trinity, to believe that Christians believe God is one being but exists eternally as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so in that sense, while Jesus and the Father are one and the same God, we very much can understand the concept of two different persons talking to each other. And that's what's happening in the Gospels when Jesus prays. But, but too often we are ill-equipped. Christians find themselves without a theological education, as it were, and without the mental or moral resolve to do the hard work of thinking things through and discussing it and growing in our knowledge and in our faith. I found that sometimes when pressed Christians are quick to give up and say that's just too confusing. It's just too difficult. But what happens when we as Christians don't know some of the most central and profound truths of our faith is we have a truncated, unhealthy, sick faith. In particular, what's common, I think, in America and Western Christianity is where Christians stop thinking distinctively Christian in terms of um, what is the identity of their God, what has he done throughout history, what has the church said about God and his activities. They um, inevitably develop a more generic God to put in its place. And Christians end up following and worshiping a generic God who's not too different from the God of Judaism, the God of Islam, just all-powerful, omniscient creator. It's a generic God 
who has a generic love and who calls people to a generic kind of nice, polite, southern hospitality life. But the fullness of the Christian faith has such profound and powerful truths that have been worked out in detail, painstakingly, for thousands of years in order that we might understand God as he's revealed himself to us. And as we understand that, I think our lives are enriched, our faith is enriched, our prayer is enriched, our mission is enriched. And so we're going to be looking at the Apostles' Creed, um, not because this creed, the statement of faith in itself, has any sort of um, special authority, but simply because we'll use it to launch into the Scriptures and examine in the Scriptures these powerful truths that are portrayed in the creed. Um, my hope is that as we go through the creed, and so for the next 12 weeks or so, we'll go through different parts of the creed. It will provide two things for our faith. It will provide insight and balance. So it will provide insight in that we will learn more about who God is, about how Christians have learned to talk about him more faithfully, about how we have understood how to relate to him and to represent him in the world. We'll be better equipped to talk about things like the Incarnation and the Trinity. We'll be better equipped to make sense of our faith in a powerful and healthy and transformative way. And, and the creed and a theological education also will provide balance, insight and balance. Balance in the sense of without things sometimes like the creed or a broad theological emphasis, we tend to emphasize one thing over another and our faith starts to get out of sync, out of balance. For instance, um, we might start emphasizing the individualness of our faith. And we, before too long, right, think that following Jesus is simply something that I do on my own. The creed, though, with its mention of the holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, balances us out and says, no, you belong to a global community. In fact, you're even spiritually united to a community that goes back throughout time, transtemporal, that crosses all boundaries and nations. Or we, we might perhaps start thinking that the Christian faith is all about good works and all about social justice and all about um, trying to make an impact in our world. And, and in that emphasis, we might lose out on the vocabulary of sin and repentance, and faith, and prayer, and, and Christian discipline. Or we might focus all on the afterlife, and we might need to be balanced out and remember that the kingdom is here and now. You know, without a, a broad theological foundation that I think we find in, in documents like the Creed, we often are too much like someone who goes to the gym and skips leg day every week. You know that, you know that person, right? <clears throat> now, I'm the kind of guy who skips all the days, okay? But occasionally, I've, I've been to a gym, and you see, right, the guy, and I mean, he's pumped out, big chest, big arms, and then, like, little toothpicks for legs, and you're like, I, I, it's amazing that he can stand upright. I mean, it's just top heavy. I don't know how I feel like, right? You're really strong. You can bench 16 times more than I can, but I can beat you in a fight, right? I just got to kind of kick at your shin, and then you're down. 
it's, it's not balanced. And, and the creed balances us out. It helps us put all the important truths on an equal level playing field so that all of our, our kind of theological muscles are developed as they, they should be. And so we're going to be using the Apostles' Creed. Um, just real quick, raise your hand if you have grown up in a church or even just visited or attended a church where the Apostles' Creed was used in worship, um, where it was recited at a certain point um, or, or mentioned. Yeah, maybe about half of us or so. Um, uh, so some of us may be more familiar with the Apostles' Creed than others. I'll read it for you. Um, you have a copy of it around, uh, and so you should be able to, to grab one of those and read along. It reads like this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. One way the creed might balance us is too often Christianity becomes kind of an emotional, um, me-centered, pragmatic religion, right? And so we are in Christianity for what we can get out of it. Can this help my marriage? Can this help me get more money? Can this help me... Um, have a better psychological profile. You'll notice that the creed um, doesn't care that much about you. There's, there's nothing in here about your job and, 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 and getting a promotion in the workplace. The creed is about something much more important than you, God. The creed is less about the person who places faith and much more about the object our faith is placed in, the constant and the eternal. The creed will give us insight and balance. Now, the Apostles' Creed um, comes out of a history from our religion, Judeo-Christianity, um, where we have regularly used creeds or kind of statements of faith, formulas to summarize and provide a central um, handful of, of important points and truths about our faith. Um, this goes back all the way to the Old Testament. Um, so in the Old Testament, you've got examples of uh, historical creeds. Um, these formulas the Israelites would repeat about things God has done for them. In Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 9, there's a famous one. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land. And for the ancient Israelites, right, that's something they can repeat and affirm. And that narrative informs them of who God is and what he's done and who they are and how they should live in response. You also in the Old Testament have more declarative affirmations of belief, like the Apostles' Creed. Deuteronomy 6 has a very famous, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Israelites would repeat this commonly throughout their day. This is their statement of faith. 1 Kings 18.39 has one. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Used in worship. The Israelites would repeat and affirm until it sank into their hearts and, and, and became a defining piece of, of what they believed and who they were. The creed um, that we have, the Apostles' Creed, 
and, and most of the early creeds. So the Apostles' Creed is the earliest creed to gain wide acceptance throughout the church. Um, it's commonly used in Protestant and Roman Catholic churches. Uh, and so in more kind of high liturgy churches, um, you know, where there's priests and someone's wearing a robe up front and things like that, um, you would have uh, lots of worship services where the creed would be recited uh, as a kind of affirmation of faith that the congregation would participate in together. It comes out of, though, the very first instructions of baptism from Jesus. So who remembers this? In the end of the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, what does he say? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you can see here in the creed, it's Trinitarian, which is to say it's shaped like the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's kind of three distinct sections there. Um, the creed develops over time out of that formula from Jesus' lips. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then slowly but surely, some more statements are made about the Father. And some more statements are made about the Son. And some more statements are made about the Holy Spirit. And what we know is that, by and large, um, very forms of the creed, very similar to the one that we have today, um, are in circulation in the 2nd and 3rd century. Um, by the 6th, 7th century, we get the finalized form that's adopted kind of universally throughout the globe. And the creed was used in baptism. That's the first use of the creed. It was used to, to teach those who were about to be baptized about the faith that they were entering into, and also used as their public declaration of faith at their baptism. So if you've witnessed a baptism at FC Cubed, um, we'll get like a little beer cooler over here. And I'm not joking. And <clears throat> before we dunk someone, I'll usually say, what's your confession? And um, we usually instruct um, the person, unless they have something they'd like to say, um, the standard kind of most central um, from the beginning, Jesus is Lord. And now Jesus is Lord is a statement means a lot of things, right? To believe that Jesus is Lord is also to believe in the Father that Jesus talks about, and to believe in the Spirit that Jesus as Lord sends. So even just that statement is Trinitarian when you think through it, when you expand it out. Um, but the early church would use this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and so the creed would be in the form of questions. And in fact, in the early church, you'd be dunked three times. So they'd say, do you believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth? And the person getting baptized would say, yes, I believe. And then they would dunk them. And then, do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord? And then dunk. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And then dunk. And so when the creed is used in worship, when the, the community of faith recites it, watch this. It's actually a reminder of their baptism and a renewal of their baptismal vows. Now, in history, around the 4th century, when the Roman Empire became completely Christian, all of a sudden, infants started being baptized. And when that happened, there was not much use for the Apostles' Creed and baptism, right? A lot of us have had infants try teaching them the Apostles' Creed, okay? <clears throat> when they're getting baptized, they're just trying to breathe. That's the main, that's the main emphasis there. Um, and so it kind of falls out of place and then when we recite it, it becomes more of like a rote um, recital of maybe propositions that we 
believe. Some of them maybe we have a hard time believing, but the church as a whole affirms them. Originally, though, it's a renewal of your baptismal vows. We, we mentioned this before, right? The two big things Jesus tells us to do to remember him, to follow him faithfully, be baptized, get wet, get dunked in the water, and then eat and drink together. Celebrate the Eucharist, communion. And baptism is a one-time thing. That's why it's so special and you got to soak in that moment, right? Communion, though, is an every week thing. Now, for maybe some of us, we've been baptized maybe twice, right? Maybe something transformative took place in our life and we looked back and, and thought we were pressured into that first baptism. But eventually, right, you can't just keep getting baptized. We're going to have to cut you off at some point. Right? You just can't keep going every time we put water up on the stage. Eventually, you're just going to have to trust it took one of those past times. But if you were one of these early church members who used the creed in their baptism, watch this. Every week, you participate not only in just the Eucharist, but also in your baptism. When you stand up with your community, you're reciting the same words that got you into that community, that got you into that water, united with Christ, buried with him in his death, risen with him to walk in new life. What a powerful practice this was in the early church. The creed is a a summary of some of the central beliefs of Christianity. It is by no means exhaustive, right? It doesn't mention everything. Um, and, And some of these things are a little controversial. I mean, we'll have a little bit of fun in the the, the week we talk about the phrase, he descended into hell, right? Um, not everyone agrees with that, and everyone interprets that in, in vastly different ways. Um, the creed is less a personal statement of faith and more a declaration of the identity of the church. There's an interesting story um, that I read about in study where a young Orthodox priest um, was being prepared for the ministry, and he was like, look, I've got some things in the creed, and he was talking about the Nicene Creed, another early, widely adopted creed, that I just, I'm not sure I believe. I'm struggling with those phrases. And the priest that was mentoring, his advice was, say it anyways. And he was like, okay. And so a few weeks later, he comes back and he goes, look, I just really don't feel right about this. Like, I want to be honest and faithful and have integrity. Like, I'm, I'm not sure I can say those things with integrity. And he said, just say it anyways. And he goes, what, do you, what? I don't understand at all. And he says, let me explain it like this. This is not your creed. This is our creed. This is the church's creed. When you're reciting that creed, he says to the young Orthodox priest, it's not necessarily saying this is what I wrote down and came up with as my exact list of what I would say about everything that I believe personally. You're saying I belong to this community. And this is what the community identifies itself as. Much like the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, I'm a pretty old guy. I grew up in an age where we said the Pledge of Allegiance in school. The Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. I know the rest of it, I promise you. And when you say the Pledge of Allegiance, a lot of people do it kind of rotely, right? It's weird how, like, as an adult, I think you'd be surprised how many people probably would struggle with the Pledge of Allegiance. But for real, I know all of it. I'm just saying some people might, just because they don't do it every day. Um, When you say the Pledge of Allegiance, though, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, you might be like, well, I'm not so sure about that. 
I'm not so sure our nation's under God. I'm not so sure there's freedom and justice for all right now. I'm not so sure we're that united. We're indivisible. But that's not the point of the pledge, is it? The point of the pledge is I belong to this community. This is partly fact, partly though maybe it's an ideal that we're hoping to live up to. But it's not something that I run through, right? If we were writing our own creeds, our own statements of faith, we might leave out some of these lines. We might include some other lines. I might include something about the social responsibility of believers. Speak truth to power. I might think twice, right, about descending into hell. A lot of people would think twice about the Virgin Mary. Some of these things are a little bit harder for us to believe and wrap our minds around, and we'll, we'll dig into them. It's okay to be honest about those things. It's okay to have those discussions. But the creed doesn't stand or fall on those things, right? It's the Apostles' Creed, which means um, that everything in the creed is found in the Apostles' teachings. It's found in the New Testament. Almost every line, every phrase comes from um, what we find in our scriptures. There's a legend about how the creed was formed that I find fascinating. And it's a legend, which means um, we're pretty sure it's not true. Um, But this was kind of the story that developed to give it some authority early on. The story is this. You have the 12 apostles, right? And more or less, we think the creed came up in the early second century, so after the first 12 apostles. Um, But the 12 apostles on the day of Pentecost, they're in Jerusalem, if you remember the story. And after the Spirit comes to them, inspired by the Spirit, They look around to each other and go, hey, so we're about to go out into the world, proclaim the gospel, but what's like the exact content of our message is going to be? What's the outline of our sermons? And then they produce the creed, inspired by the Spirit. And in fact, the story gets specific and it says they were in like this little circle and they went around and you can divide the creed into 12 parts and every single apostle added a certain part to the creed. Um, And so uh, I've got it here. It's interesting. It starts with Peter, of course, because Peter's always the first to talk. Peter says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Andrew, and in Jesus Christ, his Lord, uh, his only Son, our Lord. James, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. John was crucified, dead, and buried, and on and on. This is the the kind of uh, legendary um, origin of the, the creed, and it's used... Um, in baptism, it's used to identify us, it's used to balance us out, and it's used as a launching pad to explore what is the central truths of our faith, to explore what are the most powerful and profound and transformative truths that we believe about God and about what He's done in the world. So we'll start today by looking at the vocabulary the Creed provides us about belief, about faith. If you would, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We'll go through bits at a time. So next week, we'll be looking at a vocabulary for God the Father. And we'll look at a vocabulary for creation. Today, though, a vocabulary of belief, a vocabulary of faith. In Romans chapter 10, we get one of these biblical... Statements of faith, Christological confession, confession about Jesus. Romans 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, when Paul writes this, he's not giving Christians a magic formula. This is not some kind of incantation. This is not some kind of rote transaction. Uh, so, so Paul is not saying, look, if you can manage to come up with the skills to verbalize the syllables in whatever language you're working in, Jesus Lord, and then if you can muster up enough conviction in the moment to really believe that he resurrected, God gives you a salvation card, right? And now you're in the club, card-carrying member, you put in your back pocket, and it's just all smooth sailing from there. It's, in, it's important to, to see here a distinction. Paul, he doesn't say, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and know that he was resurrected. He says, believe. Upon closer reflection here and elsewhere in the scriptures and in the creed, the heart of the Christian faith is not knowledge. It's not assent to certain propositional facts. It's faith. It's trust. This word believe implies trust, implies action, implies a relationship, implies the submission to guidance and a way of life. There's a big difference between knowing and believing. We know lots of stuff that we don't do, right? But what you do actually belies what you really believe. You might know that when you aggressively tear down someone in your family, that's going to harm you, that relationship, your family dynamic. But because you constantly do that, what's really at work in your heart is a belief that they deserve what they're getting, that you need to stand up for yourself, that the consequences and the, the resulting actions don't matter as much as you taking vengeance, as you setting things right. You act on what you truly believe. The creed says, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And in Romans here, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it means that Jesus is God. Lord is the word we use to describe God. It means Jesus is king. It means that he rules over, protects us, also gives us commandments and a way of life to follow. When we believe that he has resurrected from the dead, that means we place our lives trustingly in his plan for creation. And then the salvation that we get is not a contract, a transaction. It's a natural gift based out of that trust. It's the life that we receive when we follow Jesus in his kingdom ways. Salvation is not an external transaction. Salvation is the gift of a relationship of God, being reunited with Christ. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I believe in the Holy Spirit. When we say that phrase, I believe, there's a lot of things we can mean by that. You know, at its lowest, I believe can indicate uncertainty. Someone might say, did she really say that? And you might go, well, 
I believe that those were her words. What you're meaning there is I, I'm not really sure. If I had to guess, yeah, that's what I'm going to go with, but I could be wrong. Right? Don't quote me on that. We also sometimes use the phrase, I believe, as a synonym for I think or as an opinion. You might say, I believe that the Rockets can go to the Western Conference Finals this year. But that's just an opinion. You might disagree. There's really not any proof for it. I might be proven right. I might change my mind. If James Harden gets injured or shaves his beard. Lots of things can go wrong. I think. This is my opinion. But then I believe can get a lot stronger than that. It can be a conviction, a trust, a deep-set belief that we're so invested in that we'd be willing to risk our lives for it. There's this unique story of a Cuban doctor, Charles Finley, who was studying yellow fever. And at the time, it was thought yellow fever was contracted um, from person-to-person interaction. And Charles thought, no, yellow fever is contracted from mosquitoes. Uh, And to prove this, he decided to take some people with yellow fever, put a mosquito screen net around them, and then go live inside of it with them. That's belief. Right? They didn't know. But he had a strong conviction. He was willing to risk his life. And when he walked out of that little screening tent a few weeks later, science was changed. We go, okay, yeah. It's not through person-to-person contact. It's, it's through the mosquitoes. That's the kind of belief that Paul is getting at. And that's the kind of belief that the, the creed is hinting at. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. These three persons in whom we believe. The creed ultimately, our faith ultimately, is not about what I believe as much as, it about, as, much as it's about who I believe in. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with that? The creed doesn't say, I believe that A is true and B is true and C is true. It says, I believe in the person of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I believe in the faithfulness of somebody to protect me and save me. I believe in their promises. I believe that they'll come through for me. I believe that they will guide me. That's the kind of belief we have in the creed. While it says, I believe, that phrase is not so much emphasizing the subjective experience, the fact that you believe. It's really emphasizing the object of the belief. In fact, it's much more important who the Father, Son, and and Spirit is more than the fact that you believe in it. Because your belief doesn't change anything. Just because you believe the world is flat doesn't change the truth, the reality. Even for those of us who have faith, Karl Barth, a, a theologian, wrote that those who have faith, when they struggle with unbelief, should never take their unbelief too seriously. Because it's not that important. Your faith's not that important. What's important is the object of your faith. It's not as, it's important, right? But it's not as important that you know and are sure that the Father, Son, and Spirit will come through for you as it is important the fact that the Father, Son, and Spirit are holy for you. 
And, and whatever you do or think doesn't change that reality. It's not so much what we believe, but who we believe in that identifies us as Christians. Now, there are certainly propositions. We do believe that God created the world. We do believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we believe in a person, three persons, one God. And, and this kind of faith in someone who will be faithful to us, this belief that someone is for us, means that faith is trust. It means that faith is commitment. When we trust that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit ultimately have good news for us, that they have covenanted to be our God, for us to be their children, then we also necessarily trust in their guidance. We trust that what they say and what they desire is ultimately the best thing for us. Faith as trust implies obedience. I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And because I can trust on their faithfulness, I also trust in their guidance. I also trust that they know best, that they would never steer me wrong. This is what belief is. Trust. A few years ago, I, a while ago, actually, maybe eight, nine years ago, I went and taught at a college in Kenya for a few weeks teaching a theology course. And I went over there because I had a professor, a Hebrew professor, Jamie Johns, who I loved over the moon and back. I mean, he was my, like, hero. And he had a ministry in Kenya where he trained up pastors. And through that ministry, I was going to go over there and, and teach a class. And Jamie was one of those guys who... On the first day of class, I've got, I've got some students in here. Maybe you can attest to this. Um, I try to be very verbal about the fact that even in a classroom, I love you. And even in a classroom, even if we don't become friends during the course of the class, because our paths have crossed, I'm on your team. You might not even like it. You might not like me, but you're Team Skinner. Right? Like in five years, we could not have talked but you can find my email address somewhere and email me and I'll help you. And I got that from Jamie Johns because the first day of class as a freshman in, in Hebrew class, he looked at us and says, uh, children, I love you so much. And it wasn't awkward and weird. We weren't like, okay, this, is, this guy needs to be investigated. It was a, wow. This is a man who loves like God loves. His love for me is not based on anything I've done or can do or won't do because he doesn't know me and I've not done anything yet. And he proved over and over and over again that it was true, that he'd be faithful, he'd come through for you. He had your best interest at heart. And so I went to Kenya. Now, going to Kenya, there were a lot of things I had not thought through very well. It was my first time ever going to a place overseas. Um, I'd gone to Mexico, um, but but over the, over the pond. It was my first time flying alone. I flew alone over there to Kenya. And at the time, the U.S. government was saying like, hey, rethink your Kenya plans. There's probably better places in the world to visit. My parents weren't thrilled that I was going over there. And I went over there, and I didn't know anybody in Kenya. But at the time, you're young, 
Everything seems like a good idea. And so I, I arrive in Nairobi in this, what their version of an airport, and it's the middle of the night. It's the 14-hour plane. I'm smuggling $10,000 of cash in my underwear. I've got illegal laptops in my luggage, and I get through security, and so I'm breathing a sigh of relief for that. And then it dawns on me, like cold water of anxiety just pouring over me. I don't know what to do next. I have not thought this far. I'm just standing here in the airport. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. Should I get a cab? I don't know how to get anywhere. Is someone coming to pick me up? I don't know if they are or who they are. I have no one's phone number or contact information. There's nothing for me to do here but stand. I'm the only white person around. That $10,000 in my underwear is getting heavier and heavier. All of a sudden, two Nigerian men <clears throat> come over to me and go, are you Mike Skinner? And at the time, I really did not know the answer <laughs> to that question. <laughs> go either way there. And I kind of was like, yeah, I think so. And, and they grabbed my arm and, and, and walked me. No introduction. No, hey, we're here on behalf of the college. Welcome. Be comfortable. Don't be scared. We're not going to hurt you. Just walk me, throw me into the back of this car, and we take off out of the, the, with their version of a parking lot. And, and within 15 minutes, we're no longer on a road. We're just 80 miles an hour, like dodging trees in the middle of the night, like 2 a.m. in the morning. And, I mean, this is the closest my life has ever been to a Jason Bourne movie. I am, like I said, I skip all the days at the gym, so there's not much I can do, but I'm, I'm surveying the car, there's, you know, a piece of the handle broken off. I'm like, if I need to, I can rip that off and use that as a weapon. My chorus is tight. My hips are tucked. Like, I'm ready to go. And, and then a phone rings in the front seat, and they hand me the phone, and I say, hello, and I hear Jamie's voice. He goes, hey, welcome to Kenya. I go, hey, Jamie, how's it going? He goes, these are my friends, Linus and Kareem. I, sorry, I couldn't be there. Uh, I'll see you in a couple of days. I'm going to take you over to college. You can get to keep this phone. It's got my number on it if you need anything. Um, let me do that. And I think through that story, and I think of the creed, because I think that's the essence of Christian belief. It's belief in someone. It's belief that they'll come through for you. It's a belief that they've got your best interest at heart. It's a belief that even when things get messy or scary or when you have to take a risk, you know that you're fully protected and covered. The belief in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is a belief that gives us freedom and joy. You know what it means to say, I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? It means I don't believe in myself. And I don't know if you know me, but that's a very freeing thing to say. And it means I don't believe in any other authority in the world that would ask me to trust them. That would say I need to rely on them to come through for me. I think through our political climate right now, on every single side, you've got people saying different things, saying trust us, saying we'll come through for you. And the history of politics shows you that most of these guys are lying to us and we're probably going to be disappointed by all of them. 
the creed tells us, don't worry about that, though. There's important work to be done in the public sphere. There's important work to be done in, in standing up for people and, and protecting um, and those who, who don't have voices and, and the powerless. But ultimately, we're not trusting in, in any authority figure. We're not trusting in a family member. We're not trusting in our own abilities for life, for peace, for security. We're freed. In August, I had a seizure. And since August, I have struggled with my cognitive ability. And so, before that was was going on, I enjoyed a high level of mental capacity. I could juggle a lot of things in my mind. It didn't stress me out. I wouldn't forget things. I was sharp and quick. Since the seizure, a lot of those things have gone from me. And it's been a struggle for me. And I was talking to my doctor the other day and just complaining. Some of you in here work with me and you know this. You know this has been going on. And, and just complaining that you know, I'm just not sure things, things will be the same. At one point he said, Mike, I believe in you. It'll, it'll turn around. Just keep pressing on. I got home and I looked at the creed. I said, I believe in God, Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I don't have to believe in myself. I don't have to believe that, that I'll ever be able to do anything. I don't have to believe that things will ever get better for me or things will ever get worse. I don't have to believe that I'll ever have to pull my way out of anything. I don't have to believe that a doctor or medicine is going to come through for me. I don't have to believe any of that. My trust isn't in any of that. I believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's the most freeing thing that you can experience. There's an eternal God in his own essence, is pure, self-sacrificial love who has decided from eternity to be for his creation. The most wise, powerful being in existence has covenanted, has promised, you are my people. I am your God. And that's, that's our fallback. My mind could go, I could become paralyzed. My doctor could cheat me out of my money. I get in a car accident on the way home today. It doesn't matter. I'm not trusting in my car. I'm not trusting in my health. I'm not trusting in what happens in the next four or five, 50 years of my life. 
I trust that there's a triune God who has my back. And that no matter what happens, the end result is life and eternal life. And it doesn't get better than that. And the creed lets me say, it is well with my soul. I believe. Do you? We pray with me.